welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, a podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 2, Another Excursion with Captain Nemo. At midday on the 28th of January, when the Nautilus came up to the surface at latitude 9 degrees, 4 minutes north, I could see land about 8 miles to the west. First of all, I noticed a group of mountains about 2,000 feet high, very peculiarly shaped. And I went below, and when our bearing had been marked on the chart, I saw that the land in question was Ceylon, that pearl that hangs from the lower lobe of the Indian Peninsula. I went into the library to look for a book about this island, which is one of the most fertile in the world, and found a volume by H.C. Sear, Ceylon and the Singalese. Returning to the saloon, I noted a few basic facts about Ceylon, which has been given so many different names through the ages. Its position, I learned, was between latitudes 5 degrees 55 minutes and 9 degrees 49 minutes, north at longitudes 79 degrees 42 minutes and 82 degrees 4 minutes east. Its length 275 miles and its maximum width 150 miles, its circumference 900 miles and its surface area 24,448 square miles or somewhat less than that of Ireland. At that moment, Captain Nemo and his second-in-command appeared. The captain glanced at the chart and turning to me said, Ceylon is famous for its pearl fisheries. Would you like to visit them, Monsieur Aranax? I certainly would, Captain. Very good. No problem about that. We can visit the fisheries, but we will see the fishers. The annual harvest hasn't yet begun, but it doesn't matter. I will give orders to head for the Gulf of Manar. We should get there sometime tonight. Captain then spoke a few words to his second-in-command, who immediately left the room. A few minutes later, the Nautilus returned to the deep, and the manometer showed a depth of 30 feet. Studying the chart, I looked for the Gulf of Manar and found it at the ninth parallel, on the northwest coast of Ceylon. It was formed by a continuation of the waters off the little island of Manar, and in order to reach the spot, we had to sail up the west coast of Ceylon. Professor, Captain Nemo said, there are pearl fisheries in the Bay of Bengal, in the Indian Ocean, in the seas of China and Japan in South American waters, in the Gulf of Panama, and in the Gulf of California. But the best pearls of all are obtained in Ceylon. It's a bit early to go there, of course, because the fishermen do not arrive in the Gulf of Menar until March. With their 300 boats, they spend about 30 days in lucrative exploitation of the sea's treasure. Each boat is manned by 10 oarsmen and 10 fishermen, the latter divided into two groups, take turns diving down to the depth of about 40 feet by means of a heavy stone, which they hold between their feet and which is tied to the boat by means of a long rope. You mean, I said, they will use these primitive means? Yes, they still do, replied Captain Nemo. Although these fisheries belong to the most industrialized people in the world, the English, who took possession in 1802 by the Treaty of Amiens. But I should have thought that diving equipment like that used by you would prove extremely useful in this work. Indeed, it would. Because these poor fishermen cannot stay underwater very long, the Englishman Percival, in his description of his journey to Ceylon, mentions a Kafir, who stayed down for five minutes without coming up for a breath. But that seems pretty incredible to me. However, I do know that some divers can last as long as 57 seconds, and that the most skillful up to 87. 
but such cases are rare, and when these unfortunate men come back on board, bloody water pours from their ears and noses. I believe that the average time that pearl fishers can stand water is 30 seconds, during which they hasten to fill a small net with all the pearl bearing oysters they can gather. In general, the fishermen do not live to be very old. Their sight grows weak, ulcers form on their eyes, sores on their bodies, and often they are seized with apoplexy and die in the waters. Yes, I said, it's a melancholy task and one that serves only to satisfy the caprices of fashion. But tell me, Captain, how many oysters can a boat fish up in a day? About forty or fifty thousand. It is even said that in 1814, when the British government sent out some of the, its own divers, they collected 76 million oysters in 20 days. But are these fishermen at least adequately paid? I asked. Not really, Professor. At Panama, they only make a dollar a week. More often, they get a penny for each oyster containing a pearl. But how many oysters contain no pearl at all? Penny for those poor people, so their masters can get rich? How appalling! So, Professor, Captain Nemo said to me, your companions and yourself shall visit the Manar oyster bed, and if by chance some early fisherman is already working there, we shall see how he does it. Good, Captain. By the way, Monsieur Aranax, I suppose you are not afraid of sharks. Sharks! I exclaimed. That struck me as being a gratuitous question, to say the least. Well... Captain Nemo repeated. I must admit, Captain, that I am not very acquainted with that type of fish. We are used to them, rejoined Captain Nemo, and in time you will be used to them. We will be well armed, and on the way we might perhaps hunt a few. It's an excellent sport. I will see you early tomorrow, Professor. After saying this in his noncommittal tone of voice, Captain Nemo left the saloon. If one were invited to go bear hunting in the Swiss mountains, one would probably say, Good! Tomorrow we will be hunting bears. If one were invited to go lion hunting in the plains of Atlas or tiger hunting in the Indian jungle, one's reaction would probably be, Ah, I see, so we are going to hunt for tigers or lions. But when one is invited to hunt sharks in their home grounds, one may well ask permission to think the matter over before accepting. Indeed, when I passed my hand across my forehead, I detected a few drops of cold sweat. Yes, let us think this matter over, I said to myself, and take our time. Hunting otter in underwater forests, as we did in the forests of the Isle of Crespo, that is all well and good. But to walk about the bottom of the sea, where one is fairly certain to run into sharks, that is quite another matter. I know that in some countries, particularly in the Andaman Islands, the natives do not hesitate to attack sharks with a dagger in one hand and a noose in the other, but I know, too, that many who confront these formidable creatures do not come back alive. What is more, I am not a native, and even if I were, I do not think a little hesitation on my part would be out of place. And so, there I was, dreaming of sharks, of all those huge jaws bristling with row upon row of teeth, capable of cutting a man in two. I could already feel a pain in my back in anticipation. Moreover, I couldn't get over the nonchalant way in which the captain had issued his deplorable invitation. It had been said as if we were going to track down some harmless fox. All right, I thought. We shall see. Conseil certainly will not want to come, and that will give me an excuse to get out of this predicament. As for Ned Land, I was not so confident about him. The greater the danger, the more he was attracted to it. I went back to Sears' book, but found I was turning the pages over mechanically without reading. 
All I could see on those pages was the open jaws of a shark. Just then, Conseil and the Canadian came in. They looked calm, even happy. They didn't realize what was in store for them. Believe it or not, monsieur, said Ned Land, Captain Nemo, may the devil take him, has just made us a very pleasant proposal. Ah, I said, you know? If monsieur does not mind, replied Conseil, the captain of the Nautilus has invited us, and monsieur, to visit the magnificent pearl fisheries of Ceylon. His invitation was most gracious, and he acted very much like a gentleman. Did he give you any details about? No details, monsieur, replied the Canadian, except to say that he had already spoken to you about this little excursion. That is quite true, he did, I said. But didn't he give you any details about, uh... None at all, monsieur, but you'll be coming with us, won't you? I? Oh, yes, of course, I can see you are looking forward to this masterland. Oh, yes, it sounds very interesting indeed. It might even be dangerous, I insinuated. Dangerous? A simple visit to an oyster bed? Replied Ned Land scornfully. Obviously, Captain Nemo had deemed it pointless to put the idea of sharks into the heads of my companions. I looked at them with a somewhat worried eye, as if they had already lost a limb. Should I warn them? Of course, but I didn't know how to go about it. Would Monsieur please give us some details about pearl fishing? Conseil asked. Do you mean about the fishing itself, I asked, or about the attending circumstances? About the fishing, replied the Canadian. It's always best to know the, the lay of the land before setting out. Well, friends, sit down and I will tell you all I have learned from the English author H.C. Sear. Ned and Conseil sat down on a divan and the Canadian said, Now, monsieur, just what is a pearl? Well, Ned, I replied, it depends. For the poet, the pearl is a tear shed by the sea. For orientals, it's a bead of solidified dew. For women, it is an oblong-shaped jewel of enamel-like substance and a glassy brilliance which they wear on their fingers, around their necks, or on their ears. For the chemist, it's a mixture of phosphate and carbonate of lime with a little gelatin. And for the naturalist, it is an abnormal growth emanating from the organ that produces mother of pearl in certain mollusks. Division mollusca, said Conseil. Class acephali, order testacea. Testacea. Precisely, my learned Conseil. Now among these testacea, the abalone, the ear shell, the tridacne, the panea, marinae, in short, all those that secrete mother of pearl, that blue, violet, or white substance that lines the inside of their shells, are also capable of producing pearls. Muscles too? asked the Canadian. Yes, muscles in certain rivers in Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Saxony, Bohemia, and France. Good, I'll bear that in mind in the future, replied the Canadian. But, I continued, the mollusk par excellence that it secretes the pearl is the pearl oyster, that precious pentadine. The pearl is nothing but a nacreous concretion deposited in globular form, either attached to the shell or buried in the folds of the oyster. On the shell it sticks fast, in the flesh it is loose, but it always has for its kernel a small hard substance, maybe a barren egg or a sand grain, around which the pearly matter is deposited year after year in thin concentric layers. Does one ever find more than one pearl in the same oyster? asked Conseil. Yes, indeed. Some oysters are veritable jewel boxes. I have even heard of an oyster, though I have some doubts on the matter, that contained no fewer than 150 sharks. 150 sharks? cried Ned Land. Did I say sharks? I exclaimed. Of course, I meant 150 pearls. Sharks wouldn't make sense. Indeed not, said Conseil. But would Monsieur now tell me how these pearls are extracted? They do it in various ways. When the pearls adhere to the shell, the fishermen may pull 
them out of, with pliers, but the most common way is to lay the pentadines out on mats made for a cert, from a certain seaweed that covers the banks. They die in the open air, and after 10 days or so, they are in an advanced stage of decomposition. Then, they are dipped into tanks of seawater, opened, and washed. Now, the extractors begin their work. First, they remove the layers of pearls, known in commerce as genuine silvers bastard whites, and bastard blacks, which are packed in cases of 250 to 300 pounds each. Then they take the parenchyma, or the flesh, of the oyster, boil it, and pull it through a sieve in order to catch the smallest pearls. And does the price of the pearl vary according to size? asked Kensei. No, not only according to size, but also according to shape, their water, that is to say their color, and their luster, that is that bright dappled sparkle that makes them so attractive to the eye. The most beautiful are called virgin pearls or paragons. They are formed in the tissue of the mollusk. They are white, often opaque, but often they have the transparency of the opal. They are usually round or oval. The round make good bracelets. The ovals are made independence, being more precious. They can be sold singly. Pearls, then, that adhere to the shell are irregular in shape, and they are sold by weight. Finally, we come to this, those small pearls known as seed pearls. They are sold by measure, usually to be used in embroidery for church ornaments and the like. But surely, the task of separating pearls according to their size must be long and difficult, suggested the Canadian. No, my friend, not at all. It is done by means of eleven scythes or strainers, pierced with varying numbers of holes, pearls that do not pass through a scythe, whose holes vary from 20 to 80 in number are of the first quality. Those that do not drop through a scythe having 100 to 800 holes are second-class pearls. Finally, the pearls of which they must use a scythe having from 900 to 1,000 holes are known as seed pearls. Very clever, said Kinsey. So separation and classification of pearls is done mechanically. And would Monsieur tell us how much money is made of these oyster beds? According to Sears' book, I replied, the Ceylon pearl fisheries yield the annual sum of three million sharks. Francs. Monsieur means francs, Kinsey corrected me. Yes, yes, of course, francs, I agreed. Three million francs, but I believe that these fisheries no longer bring in as much as they used to, and the same can be said for the American fisheries, which during the reign of Charles V yielded four million francs, an income now reduced to two-thirds that amount. The overall proceeds from pearl fishing can at present be taken as nine million francs. But, asked Kinsey, Aren't there some famous pearls that have been valued at a very high price? Yes, my lad, there are. It is said that Caesar offered Servilia a pearl valued at 120,000 francs in today's currency. I've even heard it said, the Canadian remarked, that there was a lady in ancient times who drank pearls and vinegar. Cleopatra, replied Kinsey. It must have tasted awful, interjected Ned Land. Yes, horrible, Ned replied, can say, but a little glass of vinegar worth a million and a half francs is not to be despised. Ah, I'm still sorry I didn't marry that woman, the Canadian murmured absent-mindedly. Ned Land is the husband of Cleopatra, choked can say. I was all set to get married, can say, replied the Canadian seriously. It wasn't my fault if the affair didn't turn out well. I had even bought a pearl necklace for my fiance, Kate Tinder, but she went off and married another man. Believe it or not, the pearls in that necklace would not have passed through the largest scythe, and yet I didn't pay more than one dollar fifty for it. But my good Ned, I laughed, those were just artificial pearls, hollowed glass beads, filled with a mother of pearl like substance. Is that stuff expensive? asked Ned. It is very, very cheap. 
It is nothing but the silvery substance found in the scales of fish called the bleak, preserved in ammonia. It has no value. Perhaps that's why Kate Tinder married someone else, Ned Land remarked philosophically. However, I said, to get back in the substance of valuable pearls, I doubt if any king ever possessed a pearl superior to Captain Nemo's. You mean this one? said Conseil, pointing to a magnificent jewel in a glass case. I am sure I shouldn't be wrong in valuing it at two million francs, Conseil interposed quickly. Yes, I said, two million francs, and I am sure that all it cost the captain was the trouble of bending down to pick it up. Ah, cried Ned Land, who knows whether or not our excursion tomorrow we may not come across another one like it. Pooh, said Conseil, and why not? What good would millions of francs be to us on the board of the Nautilus? I don't mean on board, said Ned Land. I mean elsewhere. Oh, elsewhere, said Conseil, nodding. Of course, I said, Master Land is right. If ever we could bring back to Europe or America a pearl worth a few millions, it would at least lend great authenticity to, and at the same time, set a high price on the story of our adventures. I can believe that, remarked the Canadian. But, said Conseil, who also reverted to the practical, is this pearl fishing dangerous? Oh, not at all, I replied immediately, especially if one takes certain precautions. And just what might the danger be? asked Ned Land, swallowing a few mouthfuls of salt water. That is quite true, Ned. But, by the way, I said, trying to sound as a matter of fact as Captain Nemo, are you afraid of sharks, Ned? Me? replied the Canadian, a professional harpooner. Why, it's part of my job to laugh at them. It's not a question, I said, of fishing for them with a hook and a swivel, hoisting them out on deck, hacking off their tails, slitting down their bellies, ripping out their guts and throwing them into the sea. You mean it's a question of... Precisely. What in the water? In the water. Well, you know, with a good harpoon, you see, Monsieur, these sharks are pretty clumsily built. They have to turn over on their bellies to catch you. And in the meantime, Ned Land had a way of saying that word catch that sent cold shivers down one's spine. What about you, Kinsey? What do you think of sharks? Well, said Kinsey, I'll be quite frank with Monsieur. This sounds more like it, I thought to myself. If Monsieur is prepared to face the sharks, said Kinsey, I see no reason why his faithful servant should not be at his side. Questions to consider after reading. The pearl fisheries still use primitive means for harvesting. Why do you think that is? The fishermen are paid a dollar a week, which Aranex exclaims, A penny a week for these poor people, so their masters can be rich? Have things changed in the times since then? Would you be afraid to swim with sharks? Aranax seems to think Conseil would not want to swim with sharks, but Ned Land would want to experience the danger. Is Aranax correct in his assumptions? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure. <laughs>